I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Israel and Palestine. Well, that already tells you a bit about where I stand. There are two long-standing entities which in many cases share the same physical space. And the one-sided support from the United States of the state of Israel is and always has been vital to the dominance of that side over the other. Meanwhile, throughout the world, non-Jews have pretty much assume that if you're Jewish, you support the state of Israel, and many do. But as the war between the two entities has never really stopped since the founding of Israel in 1948, there remain huge differences of opinion as to a solution which has the possibility of bringing real and lasting peace to the disputed region. Among Jewish Americans, for example, there are liberal Zionists And there are fervent anti-Zionists who are among the most conservative of Jews. And what may be the most powerful lobby in Washington, APAC, the American-Israeli Political Action uh, Public Affairs Committee, has traditionally held tremendous sway over members of Congress from both parties. Their position, APAC's position, has always been Israel can do no wrong. People who consider themselves Palestinian Uh, are all assumed to be active or perhaps not so active terrorists with no legitimacy. That's the assumption of AIPAC and a lot of people on the right. More recently, a more liberal pro-Israel group has been gaining significant ground competing with AIPAC called J Street. They call themselves pro-peace, pro-Israel. Theirs is a more reasonable group which supports a two-state solution. All American presidents before now have supported, or at least given lip service to, that two-state solution idea. I believe most Americans have and continue to support this idea for peace and justice. But in recent years, under the leadership of Israel's Netanyahu and America's Trump, that prospect of a two-state solution has dimmed dramatically. Both are determined that Jewish Israelis must dominate and have undisputed control over all the contested lands. And both leaders have eagerly pushed forward more Jewish settlements, even deeper into what has been Israeli-occupied territory. That, of course, renders a two-state solution bringing peace even further from reach. But one does not have to be either Israel rules or a separate, much smaller, and non-contiguous Palestinian state to see that a radically different one state is the inevitable outcome. Some people tell me that's impossible. I think it may be inevitable. To people who see this, the question is, how much blood and destruction will come between now and that reality? Our guest today is Ian S. Lustig, who is the Bess Heyman Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Paradigm Lost, 
From Two-State Reality to One-State Solution, published in 2019 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Thanks so much for being with us, uh, Professor Lustig. It is my pleasure. Well, uh, let's see. He, he's, today we'll be discussing his thought-provoking piece from the History News Network and other platforms titled Israel as Palestine. One state is not the solution, but it is the reality. He writes that the long-hoped-for two-state solution is really a dead solution walking, his words. But because one state controls the entire territory between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River does not mean we have witnessed the coming of the one-state solution. What we have is a one-state reality. Well, again, thanks for being with us, uh, Professor Lustig. Uh, I'm curious about the title, Israel as Palestine. How did you pick that title? What did you mean? Well, the title for this piece means, in effect, that uh, Israel, the state of Israel, grew out of Palestine, which was the mandate uh, ruled by the British from uh, the World War I to 1948. And the UN partition plan divided or suggested a division of Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. The uh, Jewish state came into existence uh, and, you know, war with the Arab states that invaded. Uh, the Arab state never did come into existence, though it attempted to. Mm-hmm. So in a way, Israel came out of Palestine, and many as uh, Zionists for decades living in Palestine proudly called themselves Palestinians. What is happening as Israel, uh, as a consequence of Israel de facto annexing all the territories that it conquered in 1967, that is to say, after taking over all of Palestine, uh, Palestine is, uh, Israel is now becoming back to Palestine. Israel came out of Palestine, and now in a sense, it is returning to be Palestine in the sense that it's a country which has, according to the Israeli military itself, more Arabs living between the Jordan River and the uh, Mediterranean Sea than there are Jews. And that was, that's been true for a couple of years now. Yeah, and that concerns a lot of uh, hardcore Zionists. Uh, that population, <clears throat> excuse me, that population uh, growth on one side much more than the other. And you and I have some similarities. We're both about the same age, I think, and we're both Jewish Americans. You and I remember the 67 Six-Day War in which Israel emerged hugely victorious. Six days. In many wars, the defeated side gives up. But I am not sure, I mean, that was a long time ago, I am not sure where the Palestinians were in this military action. There was Egypt, there was Syria, uh, other, you know, Lebanon, Jordan. But where were the Palestinians back then? Well, a couple of things. First of all, war is not like a boxing match where one side, uh, there, there are rules, and then one side is declared the victor and the other one is defeated. In wars, you can only win as much as you can sustain the claims that you make at the end of the war. Uh, and when you have wars that are in uh, outlying areas of the world, they're not between great powers, uh, the war doesn't deliver an automatic victory to a knockout or a technical knockout to one side or not the other. Uh, so Israel, from the beginning, uh, as to say the Zionist movement from the beginning, knew that and no one war would ever produce the kind of victory it needed, which is a victory in which the Arab world uh, effectively says, even if Zionism was not justified, we can't defeat Israel, we can't destroy it, so let's make peace with it. And, uh, and do the best we can. 
Now, that was Zionism's strategy to achieve kind of tactical victories over a long period of time, and eventually the Arabs would divide. Some would compromise, and some would have to be isolated as diehard extremists. After the Six-Day War, uh, the Palestinians uh, emerged as a political force because they did not participate as a one of the belligerents in that war, that was a war between Israel, Jordan, Egypt, and Syria. So the Palestinians, however, were able to emerge as a political force with a guerrilla uh, warfare uh, attempt that didn't mm-hmm. go very far. But they really became the focus of the conflict after 1967, uh, with a lot of international support, uh, because they had suffered so much in 1948, and yes. because they became associated in the... Uh, imagination of the Arab world with Arabs who were not corrupt, who were ready to sacrifice themselves for a cause, and who were ready to stand against what was perceived as Zionist expansionism throughout the entire uh, Arab world. So although the Palestinian uh, guerrilla organizations, specifically Fatah before 1967, Mm -hmm. tried to make some raids into Israel, and did contribute a little bit to the escalation that led to the 1967 war. They were not important players in that war. And they only became so afterwards. Boy, I don't think that was the intent. <laughs> but that's right. Right. And and you talk about. It, uh, it, I was just going to say you talk oh. about you know one side not, not. It's not like a boxing match. Back in the American Civil War, uh, the North won militarily. But as one of the abolitionists uh, uh, said at the time, Wendell Phillips, uh, the South may not ever leave the Union again and take up arms against it, but it would rule from within. And I think they've done that very, very effectively. I'm sorry to have interrupted you were saying. Well, actually, you interrupted with a very apt comparison, one that I spend a bit of time on in my Uh book, although I don't think I mentioned it in the article you cite. And that is that if you look back at the Civil War, you'll see how unexpected results of wars usually have a much bigger consequence on the future than the intention of, of <laughs> those who made the war. For example, wow, yes. uh, Abraham Lincoln fought the Civil War in order to impose a one-state solution on North America. He yes. did not want two-state solution here. <laughs> That's what the Confederacy wanted. Uh, so in that, he succeeded. Uh, the the yeah. North conquered the South, yes. occupied it, yes. and made it a permanent part of the country. However, what he never intended was that it would result in a multiracial democracy. Neither Lincoln nor almost anyone else imagined that would occur. Uh, but what we're going to do with uh, so many uh, blacks, li- formerly black slaves living in the South, well, for a hundred years, Jim Crow was apo- imposed by the former Confederates, essentially, and that postponed the time when the reality of there being a multiracial society could be expressed as a multiracial democracy. Hmm. Israel taking over all of the land between the river and the sea, right. including so many Arabs that are now a plurality, it will, it's a matter of time, it may right. be a long time, but it is a matter of time between before uh, that multi uh, racial or excuse me, multi-ethnic, multi-religious society becomes a multi-religious, multi-ethnic state. Yeah, I don't see that happening real quickly. I must say, no. <laughs> if you lived in the South in the 1880s, you would have Ugh. said the same thing about uh, whether you know how long it would take for the United States to become a multi-racial democracy. At what point would the Democratic Party 
that was imposing Jim Crow right. become reliant on a massive black turnout in order to win elections. You would have said, wow, that's going to take quite a while, and you would have been right. Well, here we are. <laughs> it's true. And, but back to the 67 war. I was a junior in high school yes. when that war took place. I remember an Irish friend of mine acting very surprised when I didn't appear to be totally enthusiastic as a backer as she expected because I was Jewish. In the early 70s, a little before that, you were a member of something called the Radical Jewish Union. What was its purpose, and do you still feel the same, and has the passage of time proved you right? Well, that, uh, yes, that's what I talk about a bit in this article that you cite. Uh, let's go back to 1969, because that's when I first went to Israel. I spent six months there as a student, and it was an interesting time, because Israel changed a lot between 1967 and 1973. Uh when the Six-Day War broke out, it was still a kind of relatively poor and uh, uh, nervous society. Uh, it, there was, both in Israel and among American Jews, a sense after this victory in 67 of a kind of super-Jew. And there was a period of a kind of boom in Israel in 69, uh, 68, 69, 70, between 1967 and 1973, that gave people, if not not just pride, but almost arrogance that led to feelings of grandiose messianic uh, aspirations among some Israelis and a kind of a super empowerment by American Jews who I lived vicariously through the exploits of the Israeli military and the Israeli Air Force and so on. So we in the Radical Jewish Union were uh, trying to preserve, we saw ourselves as trying to preserve the ideals of socialist Zionism, uh-huh. of egalitarianism, and as a, of a compassionate, uh, equal uh, relationship with Palestinians and with other national liberation movements, which is what we saw Zionism as. We were very involved in the Save Soviet Jewry struggle right. and reviving uh, Jewish cultural and educational institutions uh-huh. and in trying to convince Jewish federations not to give so much money to country clubs and to, and to community centers, but to education, to uh, uh, progressive causes, to the Soviet Jewry issue, and so on. We also strongly opposed civilian settlements in the occupied territories right. and called for an more equal relationship with the Palestinians, including the establishment of a non-belligerent Palestinian state. We, our warnings about the settlements locking Israel into a future that would uh, destroy itself as a Jewish democracy were, I think, exactly on target. Yes. And, uh, and I definitely believe, unfortunately, that the passage of time has proved me and my, my associates back then that we were absolutely right about that. Oh, that's that's unfortunate. It's tough to be ahead of your time, though. It is. And uh, as you say, I think you sort of just explained that in the article, you say that uh, that continued, you expressed concern that continued settlement in the West Bank, in specific, would, quote, would make the future withdrawal impossible, locking the Jewish state in a political dungeon from which it would never escape. That You just described that perfectly, I think. Well, specifically in that article that I wrote back in 1972, I said that uh, it would be very uh, natural for uh, the right wing in Israel to arise and strengthen itself once settlers were put in the West Bank, where a Palestinian state could have otherwise been established, 
by saying, how dare any government that wants to compromise declare that the West Bank should be Judenrein. That was the Nazi expression for free of Jews. And I was anticipating that that kind of slogan would appeal to, uh, to nationalistic Jews, having seen in Israel in 1969 that those trends already. So even though there were only a couple thousand settlers in the West Bank, uh, I was a political scientist, and I was trained to think yeah. not in the, about the effects of things, not about the, uh, that is the second mm-hmm. order and third order effects, the political dialectics of change, and that's what led me to uh, so greatly fear that, is that I and some of my friends, many of whom actually moved to the state of Israel, uh, launched a petition campaign among Jews to oppose settlement in the occupied territories and call for a, a Palestinian state. We, we s- submitted that petition with over 400 names from 15 countries to the Golden Meter government, Oh, and it was, of course, ignored, of course. Uh, and we were made fun of. But there were some Israeli uh, journalists and some Palestinian journalists who hailed our effort as a sign of what the kind of struggle that would take place in the future. Boy, you were right. It's it's so unfortunate. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, folks. And we're talking with, with uh, Ian Lustig, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, about a piece he has written titled Israel as Palestine. One state is not the solution, but it is the reality. So I wonder if, and, and you know, there's the old expression, you get four Jews together, you get five different opinions. In Israel itself, and, and there's, you know, Zionists throughout the world, any, do you know whether or not this territorial expansion, you know, kind of annexing, going in with a few settlers and then really annexing it, is that uh, pretty much almost universally supported, or, or is there resistance to that? What, what are your thoughts? And, of course, Israel depends on support from uh, foreigners uh, throughout the world. Well, well things have changed. Uh, the way I like to say it is, if you think of Israel in the 1970s as New Jersey, or Connecticut, kind of a purple state, or maybe even a blue state. It's now become Oklahoma or Idaho, a deeply red state. So you'd have to code over 70% of Israeli Jews as right-wing. In fact, they code themselves that way, as conservative right-wing, or ultra-religious, ultra-nationalist. The left in Israel, which used to be the dominant group, is now reduced to, if you exclude the Arabs, fewer than 15% of the population. So in the context of that transformation, what used to be a minority of people in Israel that imagined uh, that Israel should rule all the West Bank and Gaza greatly became, a, a dominate that whole area, eventually became a dominant majority. Now what they differ on is not whether Israel should really control the whole area but what kind of rights should be given to non-Jews in that area? And and on that, there's a lot of disagreement, and there is no consensus on how those areas should be ruled, only that one way or another, nothing should happen there that Israel doesn't really control. Mm. 
And there's that recent uh, nation-state law, which I believe deals with that. That wasn't wasn't that more of a uh, a resolution without uh, actual power to it. But wh- how does that affect all this? It yeah. seems like so a that, bad thing. That's a really interesting law, and it's not well understood because it takes a little explanation for people to understand what that's about. Most uh, there's a, a basic law, which is a, as close as Israel has to a constitution, are laws that it takes more than a majority in the Knesset to overturn. They're called basic laws. And this one just declares Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people, and it demotes Arabic from an official language to a language that's somehow special or has some distinctiveness to it, and which have effectively says that only Jews and not Arabs and no one else has the right to self-determination in the whole land of Israel, or in all of Palestine. And no no other group has the right to self-determination in this land. Now, none of those ideas are new, uh, although the Arabic language idea, making it not an official language, is a change in the legal structure. But what's interesting is why did it have to be said in this declaratory way? And most people identify it as another sign of Israel becoming extremely nationalist and extremely right-wing and trying, and, and that's, that's true, uh, but it's not the whole story. Another part of it is that the governments under Netanyahu have not wanted to negotiate any deal with the Palestinians. In order to make it look like it's the Palestinians' fault and not Israeli uh, demands that are thwarting negotiations over these past decades, the Israeli government had shifted to a demand that it never used to make, which is that the Palestinians or the Arabs who will make peace with Israel will have to declare that Zionism was right. They can't just say Zionism is wrong, but we can't destroy uh, Israel, so we'll make peace with it. They have to actually say, no, Zionism was right, this country is the country of the Jews. It's the legitimate, rightful national state of the Jews. And that's something that Palestinians and Arabs can't say. And so that's one reason for making this a law, to make it much more difficult for any future government to negotiate successfully with Palestinians. But there's a third reason it's almost never identified, and I think it's the most important reason. And that is that the the government in Israel that is on the right that passed this law because it did not have massive support except on uh, among the uh, the government coalition it did it in or because it knows that in the future just as black americans were the crucial uh, allies of liberals in the United, white liberals in the united right. states so too arab israelis who are 20% of the population and just in yesterday's elections uh, elected 15, 14 or perhaps 15 members of the parliament out of 120. They are the crucial ally of any liberal moderate force among Jews who could possibly take power in the country. So by delegitimizing Arab voices in Israel, it, it makes it much more difficult for opponents of the Likud to mobilize a winning coalition. Oh, wow. That political, that partisan political rationale for that law is largely ignored, but it's very important. Wow, interesting. I had not thought of that. But as you were describing it, you know, renouncing who you are and saying that uh, Israel is the only legitimate uh, entity here, I was reminded of the Spanish Inquisition. You know, you had to, you know, accept Catholicism or 
be killed. But that's a little more extreme. Well, there, there's a kind of catechism associated with these laws in Israel, because Israel has defined itself as a, as a Jewish and democratic state, with right. the Jewish first. But uh, the result of that is that it's actually a, uh, a crime. It's something that disqualifies you, can disqualify you from being eligible to run for political office if you say that Israel is not a Jewish state or should not be a Jewish state, or if you say that Israel is not a democratic state or it should not be a democratic state. So if you try to say that, well, there's a contradiction between being a Jewish state and being a democracy, if there's 20% of the population, actually 28% of the population, wow. 25% is not Jewish, then uh, you people run into a co- trouble speaking honestly about the situation because it's illegal. The catechism requires you to say that Israel is a Jewish and democratic state, even though that doesn't make much logical sense. Well, these these guys certainly are crafty, the Netanyahu's and Trump's of the world. (laughs) I have to give them credit for that. Now, and you you talk about, I mean, I I remember uh, Israel when I was young, you know, I was growing up as there was socialism there there were kibbutzes that you know everybody working together the kids all lived together it it sounded rather good but boy it changed after 67 as you say and just thinking of of jewish americans throughout the 20th century jewish americans to a large part have been you know traditionally on the front lines against racism against segregation largely because of our own history which informs us and because a big part of being jewish at least for me has been a rock-solid commitment to justice and ethics. Many Jewish Americans in observing news out of Israel believe that we see racial discrimination and other injustices. The Palestinians don't get the same treatment, don't have the same rights. There are others who are pro-Zionist saying, oh, nonsense, Palestinians have equal rights. What's, what's the reality there? I haven't been there since 1981. Well, uh... It'd be odd to say that Palestinians have all equal rights. Uh, we just talked about the, uh, uh, and we can, and we'll talk about that. I'll talk about that in a minute. Just what kinds of rights do which Palestinians have? Because <laughs> there are many different groups of Palestinians. Oh but first, I want to note that I agree that American Jews have always uh, tended to commit themselves to the cause of justice, to civil rights. Uh, very prominent in the anti-war movement during the uh, Vietnam War and during the Iraq War. Uh, On the other hand, uh, when it came to Israel, there was a kind of blinders that many Jews took on, and partly that had to do with guilt over the Holocaust, partly that had to do because with the fact that, well, that's what most people are like when it comes to their own group. They have a harder time seeing fault. Right now, however, I think it's important to stress that the Trump administration has highlighted the fact that American Jews who vote overwhelmingly uh, for the Democratic Party and and are going to vote overwhelmingly against Trump uh, do so, uh, and by doing so, put themselves in direct uh, conflict with Prime Minister Netanyahu and the policy of the Israeli government, a government which is closer to President Trump on almost all issues than any other government in the world. Yes. So there's, there is now a process of alienation going on between very large swaths of the American Jewish community 
and the state of Israel hmm. that is accelerated because of the Trump phenomenon and because of the relationship between Netanyahu and Trump. And we see that in changes in the Democratic Party in particular. We see that in the in how APAC that you mentioned, right. the Israel Lobby Organization, over the last couple decades has been more and more taken over by very wealthy, very right-wing groups and no longer actually expresses the opinions of most American Jews. True. And the prominence of J Street that you also mentioned, that much more uh, effectively captures where the hearts of most American Jews are in the uh, position of the two-state solution. I think, as you also mentioned, my book and my articles are arguing that, unfortunately, that possible solution is no longer available. Right. It's still a very pol- a politically and psychologically comfortable place for Jews and many others to be, despite the fact, or maybe in part because of the fact, that you really can't expect to ever get it. Now, if we, if we go back to the rights of Palestinians, yes. the way I look at the situation, you have to think of castes in Israel, because there's a, a different Jewish groups that right. have are a higher caste. They have more respect and more rights. Right. Ashkenazic Jews from Eastern, from Europe, and from America can be considered to be the highest caste. But if you look at the uh, and then ultra-Orthodox Jews have their own kind of separate status. But if you look at Arabs, Arabs inside of what Israel was before 1967, called the Green Line, they are citizens of the country. And although they can't get access to 93% of the land in Israel, which is administered by uh, the government and by the Jewish National Fund as a Zionist uh, organization, and although they can't enter the army equally and can't get benefits as veterans. They can't have their family members immigrate into the country equally, even a spouse that they might have. There are many, many restrictions on non-Jews. Still, they can vote in elections, and they are citizens with Israeli passports, despite the fact that they are surveilled and uh, they're imprisoned at, at, at much higher rates their land is expropriated, etc., etc. In some respects, they're second-class citizens, but they are citizens. However, now let's look at the other Palestinians under Israeli control, under Israeli domination between the river and the sea. Mm-hmm. There are 330,000 Palestinians living in expanded East Jerusalem. That's an area of about 75 square kilometers that Israel took from the West Bank and added to the Israeli city of Jerusalem. By doing so, they made those people, those Arabs, citizens of the city of Yerushalayim, Mm -hmm. but not citizens of the state of Israel. So those 330,000 Palestinians are permanent residents and citizens of an Israeli city, but not citizens of the country and cannot vote in the parliamentary elections. Then there are the West Bank Arabs who do not have uh, permanent residency status. Uh, cannot move freely into Israel as East Jerusalem Arabs can, but do have some rights in some parts of uh, the West Bank where the Palestinian Authority rules called Area A. Uh, then there are the Gaza Arabs, which have almost no rights whatsoever, but are uh, monitored constantly and under the thumb of the Israeli government that surrounds them, as well as a blockade that surrounds Gaza, except for a very small opening 
that's partially controlled by Israel to Egypt. So in order to ask what rights Palestinians have, you have to see that Israel rules different groups of Jews and different groups of Arabs in different regions of the country according to different laws and different statuses. I doubt that this can stand. I, it just seems like, you know, it's too much of a house of cards to be able to stand for very much longer. It's so complicated and, and, and different. Uh, it just Well, that's, that's the question that I'm interested in. What are the dynamics of this one-state reality, this rickety, yep. uh, strange, uh, un- un- illiberal, but... Uh, so far, in some ways, effective uh, uh, set of arrangements where part of the country is democratic, part is liberal, and parts are not. That is not a long-term stable relationship. Yeah. On the other hand, we know that that democracies such as the United States or France or Britain lived, uh, operated for generations while half of their population, namely women, were not integrated into the, uh, weren't given rights to vote. And so it takes a long time for what appears to be an illogical and unfair system to necessarily resolve itself in a democratic direction. It doesn't happen easily. It didn't happen for blacks in the United States easily. It didn't happen for Irish Catholics easily in Britain after Ireland was annexed in 1800. Mm -hmm. And it didn't happen for women easily. It didn't happen for blacks in South Africa for a long time, and it won't happen for all Arabs under Israeli control for a long time. Wow. A lot of blood is going to be shed, and for what reason? And, and if people who listen to this show regularly have heard me say probably too much, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. Whenever, <laughs> well, you know, when we Jewish Americans criticize Israel, hardcore Zionists call us, you know what I'm about to say, self-hating Jews. Of course, that's absurd. How does this locked-in mindset play with Israeli politics? I mean, it's, it just amazes me. You know, Judaism is a religion. Israel is a state. Yes, and uh, Jews go to the synagogue every Saturday, and they listen to uh, readings from the prophets. And almost every prophet was a prophet because... They stood up and criticized <laughs> the state at the time. They criticized the king. And it's uh, somewhat, always been somewhat amusing to me uh, how many Jews honor uh, the prophets, but not uh, perhaps the people who are prophets in their own time who stand up and, and uh, use uh, values to hold the leadership of the Jewish community, whether in Israel or elsewhere, uh, to account. Uh, it, I was called, when I first started arguing in 1971 and 72, I was called a self-hating Jew. I was even called an anti-Semite. I was even called a Nazi Mm -hmm. for getting up and talking this way. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I supported a two-state solution at that time. Now, I'm called those same things by some people because I don't support a two-state solution since I don't think it's possible anymore, and I think that to support it just postpones the time when the real struggle, the struggle for equality of Jews and Arabs rather than peace between Jews and Arabs, uh-huh. uh, becomes the issue. But that goes to show that if you're going to try to tackle tough problems and you're going to talk, try to talk about the real issues that confront us, 
And you're not going to necessarily be in tune with the vocabulary that's accepted in the time that you're talking. But that's the responsibility. I'm not a politician. I'm an analyst. I'm a scholar. And I'm a committed Jew. My interest is not winning votes for me. It's helping people think about a situation that they're in more effectively and acting more effectively. We try to do that on this show, which is called Keeping Democracy Live. I'm Bert Cohen, and we're speaking with uh, Ian uh, Lustig about uh, one state solution as inevitable. He, he wrote uh, his, his book is called Paradigm Lust from the Two State Reality to One State Solution. It's published. Uh, no, no, the Two State Solution to the One State Reality. Oh, I got that wrong. Thank you for that. Hey, I'm human. I get things wrong from time to time. Well, what about the idea? And and I know it's it's raised a lot of anger from Zionists. The suggestion that Israel just returned to its pre-67 borders, and it's, of course, immediately rejected. What, what about this? Why is, is that not possible? I mean, it seems like a lot of Arabs, Palestinians, and others would at least say that they're okay with that. Well, it used to be said that that's not possible for security reasons. But not only have the overwhelming majority of Israeli generals and security experts uh, said that that's not the case, but uh, the United States poured immense uh, resources into figuring out ways to solve all of Israel's security problems. Uh-huh. Uh, the problem now is not security, and it's not uh, for a couple reasons. One, that used to be the real threat to Israel was an invasion by Arab states. Nobody really thinks that that's right. the threat anymore. Right. The long-term threat to Israel is that there would be a fundamental refusal or inability of the Middle East to, to accept the existence of a country with lots of Jews because it behaves in ways that doesn't integrate itself into the region. And in a region where uh, nuclear weapons will proliferate, mm-hmm. that could lead eventually to the end of not only Israel, but other countries. Yeah, that would... So there's a long-term problem of delegitimization, which is a security problem. And that uh, can... And, and now the question is, well, why not solve that problem by withdrawing to the green line right. as the Arab peace plan, which has been around for 20 years and Israel has never officially responded to it. Why not do that? Well, one huge reason is that there are now not a couple thousand settlers in the West Bank, mm. as there were when I first started objecting to them in 1971. Uh, there are not 300,000 uh, as there were uh when President Obama launched his initiative in 2009, there are now, over the Green Line, west, uh, east of the Green Line, in East Jerusalem or in the West Bank itself, mm-hmm. over 600,000 uh, settlers. That means that almost one out of every 10 Israeli Jews lives in the West Bank. And nobody who is serious thinks that uh, given the political complexion of in Israel, which is so right-wing, that there would ever be, you, could, you can't even think of a coalition government in Israel that would take steps needed to, to change the situation in the West Bank and Gaza so that it would be the basis for a viable Palestinian state. 
Instead, what you have is such a situation that's so entangled that what you have is the recipe over the long run for transforming Israel. It means ending the occupation, but not by Israeli withdrawal. It means ending the occupation by making the West Bank and Gaza Arabs full parts of the Israeli polity and so that the West Bank isn't occupied any more than Western Galilee is occupied. And by the way, the Western Galilee was occupied in 1948 and 1949 during the fighting. It was called occupied territory, but when the Arabs there were given citizenship, it was no longer treated or called occupied territory. So the, occupied, the occupation ended not through Israeli withdrawal, but through full incorporation. And that's why annexation, which I used to oppose vigorously, I now see as a, as a positive thing because it starts Israel on the road toward realizing that if it annexes an area and makes it a part of the country, ultimately everyone living in that country has to have equal rights. Interesting. Very interesting. I, ha- I certainly had never thought about that. And I'm sure you've also heard that, uh, well, we can't trust the Palestinians. They all say, you know, they've never really offered peace. They all say they want to push Israel into the sea, that they will not stop until they push Israel into the sea. So we've seen war after war after war, and it hasn't worked. So I, I wonder if, if, you know, people are starting to get that, as you're saying, that this new expanded area sort of unintentionally, but can't help but lead to a, a kind of a, a unified, uh, incorporated uh, state of everybody being equal. Well, that, that, the role of unintended consequences is a big theme in, in my book. Uh, I have two epigrams at the beginning of the book. One is a quote from Leonard Cohen oh, yes. uh, from one of his last songs about, uh, about what sounded like the truth, and it seemed a better way, sounded like the truth, but it's not the truth today, which is about the two-state solution. And the uh-huh. second quote is a Yiddish proverb that my grandfather used to say, uh, man tracht und God lacht means man plans and God laughs. <laughs> you see at the way that Zionism unfolded so, and, and the whole relationship with the Palestinians unfolded so much of it has to do with unintended consequences. A great example is the Israel lobby in the United States, which was built by Jews to help protect the Israel that they honored and loved, which looked like a kind of liberal democratic uh, island in, in, the, in the Middle Eastern Sea, and they didn't want pr- undue pressure from the United States. They wanted to make sure that the American government supplied economic and military aid to Israel. They never imagined that by building this, this lobby, and with there being no countervailing lobby in Washington to oppose it, mm-hmm. that presidents would go overboard in throwing all their support uh, to uh, Israeli governments, no matter how far right they were, and would never succeed in the in the efforts they made toward mild pressure on Israel. The result of APEC's success has been to help transform Israel into an extreme nationalist clerical estate, because APEC's success in controlling American presidents destroyed the careers of so many Israeli moderate politicians. Politicians who repeatedly, and to their credit, argued that Israel had to compromise with the Palestinians because otherwise America would and would impose a solution much less attractive 
Well, they were always wrong. The United States never did impose anything. And what Israeli politicians mm. learned from APAS success in Washington is that they could promise Israelis anything. They could appeal to paranoia and to fantasy, and they could uh, demonize Palestinians to get votes. And this would give them elections because the United States would protect them from world opinion, from U.N. sanctions, uh, from resolutions against settlements and so on. That was So in some ways, the shift of Israel from a blue state to a deep red state is the unintended consequence of this over-success of American Jews trying to make up for what they didn't do during the Holocaust, which is to use their political clout to save Jews. Yeah, that was then. And, you know, I I wonder about, uh, you know, it does seem like virtually no politician uh, has the uh, chutzpah, if you will, to stand up to APEC. They just, like, they a blank check for Israel, anything Israel wants. But I wonder about the effects of that on America, quite frankly. You know, there's, there's th- you know, there's large Arab countries that, you know, it'd be nice if we were on better relations with them. But how is that policy of just, you know, APEC having so much power that, they, that, that you know, politicians just aren't going to do anything to criticize Israel? How's that affecting America's national security, do you think? Well, you said a couple of things. First of all, until very recently, you were absolutely right. Only no, almost no ambitious American politicians were willing to speak truthfully about Israel. Now you have the leading, uh, one of the leading Democratic candidates for president, Bernie true. Sanders, himself a Jew, of course, mm-hmm. correctly labeling the prime minister of Israel a reactionary racist mm-hmm. and uh, speaking in equal terms about the rights of Palestinians and, and Jews. This is a revolution. And this is a, an amazing fact, and it's something that I ascribe to the accelerating effects of the Trump uh, phenomenon identifying itself with Netanyahu and vice versa. So there is change on that regard. Americans, uh, politicians are starting to see that they don't have to. In fact, if you're a Democrat, you can't put yourself in the same trench as Netanyahu that will alienate Uh too many people in your own base. But your question about what's the effect of APAC on American interests in the Arab world, that is the typical traditional critique of the Israel lobby in America. For example, it was the critique of of two professors, Walt and Mearsheimer, who wrote their book on the Israel lobby, that it distorts American national interests. And I think that that's true. But I don't think it's the crucial thing because Israel is ultimately too small a country compared to the United States for whatever we do about it to matter to us that much. But what I'm arguing is that Israel is a small country and any little thing that we do has a massive effect on Israel. And we have done not a little thing, but a huge thing in putting the whole weight of American policy on the scales, only on one side of the scales, yeah. no matter what the Israeli government does toward the Palestinians, almost no matter what. That's where the real consequence of American uh, of the Israel lobby's power has been, distorting Israel, and not, uh, although it has also hurt our relations with our allies in Europe and with uh, Arab countries uh, over time. And we won't get into the U.S. Uh, blind support for the Saudi government, which is alienating the rest yeah. of Arabia, for sure. But uh, so I wonder, I mean, it, it, it's, 
it's not, I mean, Iran is a religious state, I believe. But my Zionist Jewish friends say, you know, Israel has to remain a Jewish state, and it is not a religious state, like Muslim state of, of Iran and, I believe, Pakistan. Can you help resolve this? Is it a religious state well, or not? Well, listen, the United States always saw itself in the 18th and 19th century as a white state. That wasn't a religious state. It was a white state. A lot of states see themselves as ethnic or racial or national, not as religious. And, when, and uh, Israel is, is, has some religious aspects to, the, to itself, but it's not a religious state as Iran is. That You're correct. Uh, but it is a parochial state. It's just parochial in a different uh -huh. way. Uh -huh. uh, and when we say Israel is a Jewish state, what is meant by that? Very few people will actually clearly define it because it sounds too ugly when you define it. So they say it's a Jewish and democratic state, which, as I said before, kind of muddies the water. Mm. What really it means is this, that Israel is a state that is wielded as a weapon or a tool on behalf of one segment of the population, the Jewish segment, at the expense of the non-Jews who live in this country, about 25%. Now, the democratic side of it is that even though the state is wielded in a discriminatory way, it can front itself as if it's democratic mm. because it's got that image in the world and it has very skillful propaganda. That ability to front itself as democratic while being Jewish uh, has been what it means to be a Jewish democratic state. Now it's almost impossible for Israel to continue to front itself that way. The discriminatory aspect of the state, now that a majority, excuse me, a plurality mm -hmm. of those living under its, the ambit of its influence and control are non-Jewish, that means that what you have is the Jewish state, as it always has been, is not there anymore. Mm. So uh, what I'm suggesting is that people take their values, and I hope that those values are democracy, equality, and mutual respect for self-determination rights that are not exclusive, and they start acting for those values and not specifically for a institutional uh, architecture, whether that's two states, 14 cantons, three states, or one state, just act for your values, and over time, the situation will bend toward democratization for all the people who live between the river and the sea. I'm not sure if it was Martin Luther King or perhaps Gandhi about uh, the arc of history bends toward justice. I, sometimes that's hard to see. I don't imagine there's much discussion in among Jews in Israel, about the idea of a one equal state, a secular state, if you will. I wonder if there's any discussion about that amongst the various uh, Palestinian groups. Oh, there's plenty of discussion, and including discussion on the right in Israel, because many annexationists know that when that they don't, they can't really keep a stable Israel sovereignty over the whole area unless all the people there are integrated as equal citizens. So right now you have about 17% of Israelis, Jews and Arabs, responding to polls by saying, yes, we want annexation of all the areas with equal rights. Now, 17% is a minority. It's not a lot, but it's not that much bigger of my, a smaller a minority 
then favored the two-state solution in Israel as, as uh, late as the, uh, as the late 1980s. Mm. So uh, these okay. things uh, start out as minority opinions, but they're not, they're there. And the logic of the situation will move toward that as more moderate Jews see that their only way to get back into power is to empower and enfranchise more Palestinians. Many Jews in this last election, once the results are analyzed, you'll see that they left, they deserted the left-wing Zionist parties and voted for the Arab list. Right now, in this last election, you'll be interested to know that the Arab joint list uh, posted uh, campaign posters in ultra-Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods in Yiddish, calling upon those Jews to vote for the Arab party because both of them oppose conscription uh, of mm-hmm. their of their sons into the army. And there are, of course, a lot of, uh, well, I don't know about a lot, but there are some uh, Orthodox Jews who speak up here in the United States who agree very much, and they say that, you know, only God can create Israel, you know, the real Israel. But so there's differences, you know, on all sides. And I wonder how long, I know this is this is hard to do, but how long will it take, do you think, for something like this to happen? And maybe you can paint a picture for us of what seems like was intended back in 1917 with the uh, Balfour Declaration, when, you know, Britain was fighting against uh, uh, the Ottoman Empire, which was supporting Germany. They wanted a new national home for Jewish people in Palestine. Somehow, it seems like that clear intent was that... Palestinians and Jews treat well, each other as equals. So that, they, they, they said that very carefully. Yes. Uh, so that it would be ambiguous. Uh, the Jews wanted them to say it, that Palestine would be the, a Jewish state. The British only said there'll be a national home without right. saying what a national home is. Right. I think that's perfectly reasonable to look forward to a single uh, country where both Palestinians and Jews look at that country as a national home for their peoples in which oppressed Palestinians and oppressed Jews, wherever they may be, can look forward to the possibility of emigrating into that into their national homes, both within the same country. Now, that would be consistent with the Balfour Declaration. I've actually written an article about that. But that's just one possible vision. It's when you think about time, I can't put a specific time on this. Sure. I have said that there are three kinds of time in politics. One kind is unfortunately the kind we are exposed to all the time right. here in the United States and in Israel, which is sports time. Who's winning? Who won that debate? What's their strategy? What tactic? Who's, uh, who lost? What's going to happen tomorrow? And that's what sells soap. That's what, uh, what the news media loves, yes. sports time politics. Yes. Then there's strategic time, three to five years, when you actually think about a plan you could have to fix a problem or address a problem. And that's what the two-state solution people have been thinking of over the last uh, 50, 40 years. But my view is that that's no longer possible. And what we have to think about is what's more geological time, which is decades mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and generations, not quite geological, but it's, it's longer oh, periods yeah. of time, when political culture changes as well as alignments of groups with one another as their uh, as the as they shift their images of how they could succeed, I remind you again of the United States, where George Wallace, the arch segregationist, ended up winning his fourth 
term as governor of Alabama by kissing black babies because there was just no other way to win the election. Interesting lesson. Interesting lesson. Well, let's hope we can learn from that. And, you know, I was, I was thinking about uh, in the American Civil War, once the, the uh, slaves were officially, officially emancipated, they kind of walked away from it. But here it is, you know, like 150 years later, and it's still being worked on. That's one kind of time. It certainly is. Well, very, very interesting and, and most informative. Uh, let's see here. Let me look at my notes here. Yes, the, the book is called Parad- I'll see if I can get it right. Paradigm Lost, From Two-State Solution to One-State Reality, published in 2019 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, it seems like that's inevitable. People, you know, when I say that, people say, oh, you're crazy. That'll never happen. <laughs> I think it will happen. Thank- yes, well, someday there'll be a black president in the United States. <laughs> Could happen. Thank you so much. Very, very interesting and informative. Thanks again. You're welcome. Bye-bye. This land is your land. This land is my land. From the coast of Cornwall to the Scottish Highlands. From the sacred forests to the holy islands. This land was made for you and me. As I walked out through the homeless counties. The traffic raging, raging all around me I closed my eyes and dreamed how it could be This land